This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, we're very pleased to have Sam Cassow on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Who Will Write Our History, Emanuel Ringelblum, The Warsaw Ghetto, and the Oinig Shabbos Archive. A lot has been written about the Holocaust, obviously, and unfortunately, much of it, or even most of it, has been written from the perspective of the perpetrators, that is, the Germans. Uh, the reason for this is quite simple, and that is that the Germans took uh, very uh, meticulous notes about what they were doing. They were... Um, great record keepers. So uh, much of what we know about the horrendous crime that they committed at mid-century comes from uh, German archives. Um, Now what makes this book particularly interesting to us is that here we see the Holocaust and particularly the Warsaw Ghetto from the point of view of Jews themselves and uh, from a very particular perspective, that is from the perspective of a group of um, left-wing Zionists led by Emanuel Ringelblum a quite heroic figure, uh, who decided that uh, after the Germans had taken Warsaw that they needed to chronicle Jewish life in the ghetto. Um, it, it in ways is a tragic story, and uh, it is a story of bravery, it is a story of honor, it is a story of betrayal, um, but most of all it's a story of people who were extraordinarily committed to the historical project, even as they faced their imminent deaths. Uh, the members of the Oinig Shabbos archive in um, 1941, 42, 43 continued to write the history of what was a vanishing Jewish people. Uh, We should thank Sam for writing this book. And without further ado, here is the interview. Hi, Sam. Hi, Marshall. How are you doing? Uh, I'm very well today. It's very cold here in Iowa. Uh, uh, Where are you right now? I'm in West Hartford, Connecticut, and everything's covered nice. Ice, yeah. No, we have snow here. It's it's a, it's a, that's what happens during the winter. Anyway, I should tell our um, listeners that we have um, Sam Casso on the show today, and we'll be talking about his new book, uh, "Who Will Write Our History?" Emmanuel Ringelblum, the Warsaw Ghetto, and the Oinig Shabbos Archive. Sam, am I pronouncing that correctly? The uh, the Oinik Shabbos archive. Shabbos archive. I had yeah. the uh, had the accent wrong. I'll probably make that mistake again. Um, I've I've read the book and it is um, it is just a remarkable story. It it it, uh, it is one of the most. I mean, if you're subject to historians, it's the most poignant uh, story about historians I have I have absolutely ever read. And and at moments it's very triumphant, and at other moments it's incredibly tragic. And you have to admire the the bravery of everyone involved. Uh, I, I was, uh, I was, I was extraordinarily impressed. And as, as a, as a scholarly work, it is, uh, it's tr- truly amazing because, um, Sam works in all the languages and has read all the sources. And, uh, it's, uh, just a, a privilege to, 
to, to read a book like this. So, uh, so Sam, I've laid my cards on the table here. You know what I think. Um, so maybe I could begin by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself, um, where you grew up, where you went to school, and how you became interested in history and that sort of thing. Yeah, I, uh, I, uh, I was born in uh, Germany in a displaced persons camp after World War II. My parents were Holocaust survivors. Uh, I grew up in uh, Connecticut. Uh, I really got interested in history uh, when I was an undergraduate at uh, Trinity College, where mm-hmm. I'm teaching now. Isn't that great? Yeah, and uh, and then I uh, got a fellowship to go to England, and I studied with a with a great professor, Leonard Shapiro, at Lund School of Economics. And uh, I uh, my interest uh, in uh, Russian history deepened, and I went to Princeton for a doctorate, and I became a Russian historian. And for many years, uh, I really had nothing to do with the Holocaust, or uh, I, I, I found it very difficult to approach in a scholarly manner, maybe because I felt too close to the material. Mm-hmm. Uh, after my parents passed away, I realized that uh, it was very important to tell the story. And I got very interested in a Jewish historian, Emanuel Ringelblum, who perished in the Holocaust, who was shot in 1944, and I began to ask myself, uh, how did this uh, historian gather 60 people in the Warsaw Ghetto uh, and organize this incredible archive project, which uh, left thousands and thousands of documents? At the same time, he was able to keep absolute secrecy uh, in fact, the project was so secret that it was almost uh, lost forever because of the 60 people in the project, there were only three survivors. Only one knew where the archive had been uh, hidden. Uh, after the war, Warsaw was such rubble that even if you knew where a building had been, it was hard to find it. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, it, it, this, this story of uh, how a historian in the middle of absolute uh, chaos and catastrophe uh, is able to remain true to his mission to record history. Yeah, that that is truly, the, I think, the most remarkable part of the story. I mean, because <laughs> you hear a lot of uh, historians in the United States fetching about uh, the conditions under which we work, um, but it is nothing compared to the conditions under which these people worked. And, and, and the degree to which they maintained their principles toward things like objectivity and uh, using primary sources and gathering and creating archives is, is uh, truly a, a testament to the way that they were, I guess, trained. So why don't we begin by talking a little bit about that. Tell us about Ringelblum and his... His circle. Uh, Emmanuel Ringelblum uh, was uh, a member of the Polish Jewish intelligentsia before the war. Uh, he was a historian. He was a community organizer. Uh, he was very much involved in a radical uh, political party, the Left Labor Zionists. Uh, Jewish historians in Poland uh, in the 20s and uh, 30s did not have any chance at a regular academic job, but nevertheless, 
They kept in touch. They had seminars. They read each other papers. They saw history uh, long before World War II as a weapon of national defense against mm -hmm. anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. If anti-Semitic historians in Poland were saying, we're using scholarship to argue that Jews were aliens, that Jews were newcomers, that Jews had damaged Poland, uh, that Jews had been responsible for Poland's uh, collapse in the 18th century, then historians like Emanuel Ringelblum, Rafael Mahler, uh, Isaac Schipper used their own scholarship to say that the Jews had helped build the country, they'd been in the country for centuries, that they were an integral part of the nation. Uh, so this idea that history was not only scholarship, but it was also national defense, it was part of nation building, uh, this idea was highly developed before the war. When the war starts, the uh, uh, at first, of course, they had very little idea that the Germans are going to kill everybody. The Nazis themselves didn't know that until late 1941. Mm -hmm. But when the war starts, Ringelblum is determined to document every aspect of Jewish existence, mainly in order to create a usable past for the post-war period, mm -hmm. uh, that uh, the Jewish community would emerge from the war, they would look at the record, what worked, what didn't work, what leaders succeeded, what leaders failed, uh, and that this uh, would help the Jewish community gain a better sense of itself. Uh, this was the original focus, and then, of course, as the war went on and as German intentions became uh, clearer, the agendas uh, changed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the various divisions within the Jewish intelligentsia itself in the interwar period, because um, we need to, um, and this is one of the things I learned from the book, uh, we need to situate Ringelblum and his circle um, in relation to other groups. Now, he was, a, a, I don't know if this is the right word, but he was a Yiddishist? Or he, uh, he, yes. Uh, Polish Jewry before the war was very divided. Uh, it was a community of about three and a half million people. Uh, they, they were divided about religion versus secularism. They were divided about the Jewish future. Is our future there, i.e. in Palestine or here in uh, Poland? Uh, they were, uh, they were uh, divided uh, about language. Is our language Yiddish? Is our language Hebrew? Is it legitimate to have a Jewish culture in uh, Polish? So it was a very uh, fractious kind of a uh, community. And Emanuel Ringelblum uh, was part of a party called the Left Labor Zionists. They were very Marxist. They uh, believed in a world revolution. You might argue they were uh, pro-Soviet, mm -hmm. although not a communist. And their ideological mentor was a Jewish uh, writer named Ber Barachov, who died in 1917, but who had developed a, a highly uh, idiosyncratic and complicated idea of Jewish history in the diaspora, which basically argued that Jews ultimately uh, uh, cannot survive in the diaspora because anti-Semitism 
will render them economically uh, superfluous. That is, that uh, the uh, that anti-Semitism will push Jewish workers, Jewish entrepreneurs to the uh, periphery, and therefore Jews will have to constantly migrate, and ultimately this migration will end up in uh, Palestine as a territorial base. It was a highly complicated ideology, but to cut to the chase, what it meant was that the adherents of this party had to study Jewish economic and social history of the 15th, 16th, 17th century to make their case that uh, the that uh, the Jews were uh, in a constant economic struggle with their uh, neighbors, that Jews were being constantly forced to uh, move, that it was economic uh, competition rather than religion, which was the reason that the Jewish nation uh, survived. So this was an example of history very much involved. Uh, not just with scholarship, but with a political agenda. Mm-hmm. How did, um, and this is something I know just a very little bit about, and I remember it primarily from graduate school, how did the um, left labor Zionists uh, relate, or how would you compare them to the, I guess, much larger, stronger, and maybe even better organized Bund? Yeah, well, the Bund, of course, was the major Jewish left-wing party in uh, Poland. Uh, the, the Bund's uh, philosophy was very, very simple. Uh, we believe, the Bund said, in democratic socialism. We believe in world revolution, but we oppose this Bolshevik idea of dictatorship. And as far as the Jewish question is uh, concerned, uh, the Jews in Poland will uh, enjoy equal rights when there's a socialist revolution. Mm-hmm. And then the Jews will be able to develop their Yiddish culture and be able to remain in Poland, which is their country. The Bund rejected the idea that there was such a thing as a worldwide Jewish nation mm-hmm. uh, with uh, common interest. The Bund rejected the idea that this worldwide Jewish nation needed a territorial base in uh, in uh, Palestine mm-hmm. in order to maintain its identity. The, the Bund focused on struggle here in Poland. Its motto was doikait, which in Yiddish means here-ness. Mm-hmm. Our home is here. Mm-hmm. And the Bund was also very optimistic about the Jewish future in uh, Poland. It believed that ultimately the Polish left <clears throat> would uh, triumph and the Jews would enjoy equal rights. Mm-hmm. E- Emanuel Ringelblum's left labor Zionists, unlike the Bund, really believed that the Jewish problem was worldwide, that it was existential, that uh, um, that unless the Jews had a territorial base in uh, Palestine, even if there were a socialist revolution in Poland, uh, there would still be anti-Semitism and the Jews would still be marginalized. Mm-hmm. Indeed, the, uh, the left labor Zionists pointed to the Soviet Union. As an example, where after the revolution of 1917, uh, the Jews are going into white-collar occupations, they're going into managerial um, occupations. They still retain that different economic structure, even after socialism, and that's leading to anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. So the left-labor Zionists were 
uh, territorialists. They believed that ultimately mm-hmm. Jews needed a territory, and once they had that territory, then it didn't matter if millions of Jews remained in the diaspora, but the territory would be the model, it would be the template mm-hmm. that would change Jewish psychology, and, and that would give Jews in, in the uh, diaspora uh, a clearer sense of identity and uh, belonging. Mm-hmm. Let, me, let me complicate the picture even further uh, and ask how Ringelblum and uh, the Bund, if you will, uh, related to two other groups, that is, uh, one unorganized, and that is uh, Jews that were simply assimilating. Um, actually, I was just reading about Freud recently, uh, who was uh, born... Shlomo Freud, if I'm not incorrect, and, and then yeah. according to him, modernized his name. That's the way he put it to Sigismund. Um, and then a second group would be the Hasidim in, in, in Poland and elsewhere. These would be what we would call Orthodox Jews. What do they think about these two groups? Well, it's uh, very interesting that, of course, ideologically, the Bund opposed both assimilation and the Hasidim, and uh, so did the left labor Zionists. Now, again, as far as the Bund was concerned, this was a process of evolution. When the Bund began, its attitude towards assimilation was totally neutral. If you want to assimilate, fine. Uh, at first, the Bund was not so much interested in Jewish culture as it was in mobilizing Jewish workers to fight the Tsar. But over time, the Bund uh evolved as a party dedicated to a Yiddish and as a party that fought assimilation as a program. The same for the labor Zionists. Uh, now, in practice, though, in the 1930s, as anti-Semitism escalates in Poland, uh, after the death of Yusuf Pilsudski, the Bund organizes defense squads, squads of tough, husky uh, workers who defend Hasidim, who are being attacked mm-hmm. in public parks. Uh, the Bund also organizes defense squads at Warsaw and Uvalde, uh and Vilna universities, mm-hmm. defending middle-class Jewish students who are uh, usually uh, Polish-speaking and certainly not from working-class families. So on the one hand, ideologically, uh, parties like the Bund and the Left Labor Zionists were opposed to the Orthodox and to the Jewish middle classes, but in uh, the Jewish uh, Polish-speaking uh, assimilated middle classes. But as anti-Semitism escalates, uh, there's the realization that we're all in the same boat. We're all Jews. We all have to defend mm-hmm. ourselves. It's a matter of national honor. Mm-hmm. And there is this a uh, real psychology of circling the wagons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that comes clear in the, in the founding of um, Oinig uh, Shabbos itself. So let's uh, go directly to that. Now, the, the Germans um, uh, set up the Warsaw Ghetto in the fall of 1940, is that correct? Yes, in yeah. November 1940. Yeah, 1940. Um, and uh, how, did, how, did, how did Ringelblum uh, respond to this? Well, uh, at first, of course, uh, nobody could predict 
that the Germans were going to uh, progress to extermination, to um, to a mass murder. And as I said, the Nazis themselves didn't decide this until sometime in the second half of 1941. So uh, when the Warsaw Ghetto uh, begins, and of course everybody was shocked to find that it would be uh, closed off. The hope had been that, yeah, we'll live in a ghetto, but we'll be allowed to leave the ghetto during uh, the day. Uh, but when the Warsaw Ghetto was uh, closed off, uh, people like Emanuel Ringelblum uh, went to uh, the uh, habits went to the experience that they had before the war. That is, we Jews have to uh, organize soup kitchens, we have to organize house committees, we have to organize self-help. Self-help is not just charity, it's not just helping the poor, but it's the, it's, it's, it's the basic uh, guarantee of uh, communities, uh, communities solidarity. Uh, before the war, Ringelblum had been a community organizer. He'd organized uh, small loan societies, uh, what today we would call micro-credit. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, long before the war, Ringelblum was convinced that it wasn't so much the money that these small loan societies lent, but it was the moral message that the Jews stick together, that we're not all alone. Uh, the small loan societies were financed by the Joint Distribution Committee, an American organization, but the rule was 50-50, that 50% of the capital would come from America, but Jews would have to raise the, the re remaining 50% themselves. All of this to uh, uh, replace the traditional idea of charity with the idea of a lame heel with self-help. Mm -hmm. And Ringelblum took this idea into the Warsaw Ghetto. In other words, in the initial period of the Warsaw Ghetto, he saw this as a test of the maturity of the Jewish uh, uh, people in, in uh, Warsaw, and he believed that with uh, a proper organization and with goodwill, the Jews would pass that test. Mm -hmm. So in the Warsaw Ghetto, you had a thousand house uh, committees. You uh, had dozens of uh, soup kitchens. You had this enormous effort to mobilize the community to help the less fortunate. And, of course, people had no idea how long the war was going to last. Mm -hmm. And they thought that if the war lasts a year or so, we'll be able to uh, somehow survive. And uh, in these thousand house committees, uh, people in a particular building in uh, the ghetto would make lists of their poor neighbors, uh, they would uh, uh, make uh, uh, schedules of which family was to feed which poor child. They established daycare centers. Uh, there was this massive effort, uh, and uh, Emmanuel Ringelblum was one of the leaders. Mm -hmm. And it, one of the great stories of the archive is that it traces the growing pressure on the self-help. Mm -hmm. the, 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 the fact that ultimately one house committee after another begins to run out of money. Mm -hmm. uh, it uh, traces this battle between the Jews struggling to survive economically and, uh, the, and the growing uh, 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 impoverishment, the uh, lack of food, the lack of uh, money, and uh, yet despite all of the terrible difficulties, 
between November 1940 and June 1942, when the extermination begins, 80% uh, of the Warsaw Jews manage to survive. 20% mm -hmm. uh, uh, die of starvation and, uh, and uh, disease, but 80% manage to survive. Mm -hmm. And one of the real stories that Emanuel Ringelblum is uh, telling is that he's tracing this massive communal effort uh, at organization uh, in order not only to uh, save people, but to maintain a sense of communal pride and basic dignity. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, uh, Ringelblum and his circle are working in the uh, in these self-help organizations. On the other hand, he's already set up um, Oining Shabbos, right? Yes, and the two go hand in hand because the whole archive is embedded in the self-help organization. Uh, the self-help organization with its soup kitchens, with its house uh, committees, with its refugee committees. This is the cover which allows the Oynik Shabbos to decide what project we're going to do, who we're going to interview. The self-help organization, especially as 100,000 refugees are shoved into the Warsaw Ghetto, the self-help allows the Oynik Shabbos, say, to set up massive interview projects with the refugees uh, to get information from what's going on outside of Warsaw. Uh, the people who are running the soup kitchen, who are also part of the Oynik Shabbos, give Emmanuel Ringelblum information on individuals who know a lot, who would be useful to talk to. Mm -hmm. And because of the self-help, the archive is able to interview these people uh, to organize uh, projects without uh, having to compromise secrecy. Mm -hmm. uh, tell us a little bit about who was in the uh, Oneg Shabbos. Well, uh, of the uh, 60 or so people in uh, the Oynik Shabbos, there was quite a diverse uh, representation. There was a rabbi, Shimon Huberbond, uh, who was uh, uh, a budding historian before the war, but, 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 but also a devout Orthodox rabbi. And he was one of the major uh, sources of information about the religious uh, community and religious life during the war. He perished in Treblinka in 1942. But alongside Shimon Huberbaum, there was a communist, there was Yehuda Feld, who uh, worked with uh, children in uh, the ghetto. Uh, there were uh, general Zionists, such as Lipa Bloch. There, there was uh, Yitzhak Gitterman, who was the head of the Joint Distribution uh, Committee. There were women, such as Rachel Auerbach and Cecilia Slapakova, that is, uh, women who had been active in uh, journalism and in writing before the war. There were totally obscure figures like Daniel Fliegelman, a young man who arrives as a refugee in the Warsaw Ghetto and uh, uh, catches the eye of some of the leaders of the Oynik Shabbos for his uh, skill as a writer, and he's recruited to conduct uh, interviews. Uh, so the Oynik Shabbos runs the whole gamut. Uh, there are writers who write in Yiddish, there are writers who write in uh, Polish, uh, once a week, the executive committee meets on Saturday afternoons. Uh, that's one reason why you had that code name, Joy of the Sabbath, Oynik Shabbos. And they would chart the uh, uh, assignments, 
they would decide on the priorities and they would decide who was going to do what. Mm -hmm. How did the uh, Oinig Shabos relate um, to uh, the Jewish authorities in the ghetto? Well, that's an interesting question. In the Warsaw Ghetto, the Oinik Shabbos uh, really gave the Judenrat, the uh, Jewish Council, a wide berth. Uh, they didn't trust the Jewish Council, and they, they were afraid of, uh, the, of uh, compromising secrecy. In some other ghettos where there were secret archives, there was more collaboration with the Jewish Council. But in the Warsaw Ghetto, Emanuel Ringelblum really... Uh, uh, tried to avoid the, the uh, Jewish council. Now, there was one exception, Shmuel Winter, uh, a wealthy businessman from Slavic, who, like many other members of the Oinik Shabbos, had been active in the YIVO, the Yiddish Scientific Organization, which before the war in uh, Poland uh, had uh, been very much uh, dedicated to developing scholarship in the Yiddish language. And uh, Shmuel Winter was uh, uh, wealthy, he was well-known, he was recruited to a Judenrat department, but because they knew him and trusted him, uh, he was also a key member of the Oinik Shabbos. But that was the exception that really uh, proved the basic rule. Mm -hmm. One of the things that comes up again and again in the book, and it's something that uh, Ringelblum and his comrades uh, think quite a bit about and obviously are vexed by is the behavior of um, both the Judenrat and the Jewish police. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, this is a very painful and complicated subject. And, and basically, in some ways, Ringelblum was unfair about some of the Judenrat leaders. Uh, uh, like many others, he was, I think, a little bit too judgmental about Adam uh, Chernyakov, who was the head of the Judenrat, and who took his own life in July 1942. I think there was uh, not enough uh, understanding of the particular position that Chernyakov was in. That said, uh, there was in the Warsaw Ghetto a growing hatred of the Judenrat, and especially a growing hatred of the Jewish uh, police. When the Jewish police was first formed, uh, there was some admiration, and there was a certain uh, tendency to uh, welcome the Jewish uh, police. There were no Jewish policemen before the war in Poland. We have our own Jews now keeping order. You could speak to them in uh, Yiddish. The problem was that over time, as with so many other uh, aspects of ghetto life, you saw a deterioration. That is, since the Jewish police were not paid, they began to take uh, uh, bribes. Uh, they began to uh, single out poor people when they were told to catch people to send to, send to labor camps. Uh, the moral level of the Jewish police constantly fell. Then, of course, when the great deportations began in July 1942, the Jewish police are told to catch five Jews a day to protect themselves and their families from deportation, and they turn into monsters. And uh, the Jewish police was very hated, and the Oinik Shabbos documented this uh, process. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What, um, 
I'm, I'm very interested. One of the things that you do a, a really nice job of chronicling is the the reasonably well. I was going to say slow realization of what was going on um, in uh, well, beginning in uh, the summer of 1942. That in fact uh, the ghetto was uh, basically. Uh, set to be eliminated along with all the Jews in it. Could you talk about the process by which information concerning mass extermination filtered into the ghetto and how Ringelblum responded to it? So, well, that's, a, that's an important uh, question. I mean, how the Jews learned, when, when did they know, what did they know, how did they relate to the material? Now, the first mass killings were in Lithuania. And in October 1941, mm-hmm. uh, an envoy from the Vilna ghetto reaches the Warsaw ghetto and talks about the mass killings in uh, in Vilna and in uh, other places. But many Warsaw Jewish leaders, including Emanuel Ringelblum, uh, don't want to believe that this is the first step in a major German project to kill all the Jews. They see this as a local event caused perhaps by the particular uh, hatred that many Lithuanians felt for the Jews, caused perhaps by the fact this was had been Soviet-occupied territory. So he refused to really see this as the beginning of a major extermination program. In February 1942, an escapee from the Helno death camp arrives in the Warsaw Ghetto, and uh, he is uh, uh, led to the Einik Shabbos, and he's, he gives a thorough and detailed interview about Helno. And then the Einik Shabbos begins to understand that uh, the Germans are intending to murder the Polish Jews. But even so, uh, Ringelblum himself holds on to every shred of hope that he can. Uh, in June 1942, when uh, the BBC uh, makes a, a broadcast mm-hmm. using Einik Shabbos material, Emmanuel Ringelblum says, well, now that the German people know what's going on, they'll force Hitler to stop. People who used to vote for the communists and the SPD won't allow such a crime to be committed in uh, their uh, name. Uh, in, when the Warsaw Ghetto extermination begins in the summer of 1942, uh, he's still hoping that maybe part of the ghetto will be uh, maintained as a labor reserve. Uh, so uh, it, it's only gradually that Ringelblum begins to understand what's at stake. Uh, and this is a very well-informed historian he has access to all this information, but even he has trouble grasping the full enormity of what's going on until well into 1942. Mm-hmm. As well he might. Um, it seems to me he goes through kind of a, a, a tripartite progression. At first, you know, he his notion is that the Oining Shabbos is going to help save the Jewish people after the war. Um, then in this uh, second phase that begins in the summer of 1942, after it's clear that the Germans are bent on extermination, he begins to think about saving the Polish intelligentsia. And then in the third, he's saving himself. I mean, I'm sorry, the Jewish Jewish intelligentsia. Yeah, Yeah, maybe you could talk a little bit about that second stage, because he does kind of, he does does, uh, shift his his goal a little bit at that point. 
Yeah. Uh, well, at first, of course, he's hoping for a usable past. He's hoping that most Jews will will uh, survive. Uh, when uh, it becomes clear after the summer of 1942 that uh, a very few Jews will uh, survive, he's still hoping that uh, uh, money that's available might be used to save a uh, a uh, core of the Jewish intellectual a, a elite, the writers, uh, people uh, who might be able to rebuild Jewish culture after uh, the war. Uh, this runs into many uh, difficulties, uh, and uh, uh, he doesn't get much support from others for this idea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and then at a certain point, um, there's a kind of I, I don't know if there's a division within the Oindig Shabbos, but there is a division within the Jewish intelligentsia in the Warsaw, and many of them go over to the uh, the so-called Aryan side. Um, I, yeah. I, I have a couple of questions about this. I, I wasn't aware that the boundary was very porous; that it was that it was very easy to go to the Aryan side. Um, and um, then I, I wasn't I wasn't also aware that there were a lot of sympathizers on the Aryan side to the Jewish. Uh, Cause maybe you could talk about both of those issues. Uh, well, it wasn't so easy to go to the Aryan side because to survive on the Aryan side, you needed uh, impeccable command of Polish, but not a too good a command of Polish because that wasn't natural either. You needed iron nerves. Uh, you needed papers. Uh, you needed uh, a lot of contacts, and in fact, uh, many Jews who were hiding on the Aryan side returned to uh, the ghetto. Uh, but after the summer, after the fall of 1942, it became clear that there was simply no choice, that no matter how difficult it was on the Aryan side, it was the only hope mm-hmm. of surviving uh, the war. And then more and more people began to go to the Aryan side. Ringelblum himself sent his wife and child to the Aryan side in uh, February 1943, and then he went himself to this hideout. But at the same time, he would come back into the ghetto uh, very often uh, to continue to do his work there. And he was uh, indeed caught in the ghetto when the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising uh, started, mm-hmm. uh, but he was heavily criticized by many, by some of his associates, for going to the Aryan side uh, instead of staying in uh, the ghetto. And of course, this exposed what Professor Lawrence Lager has called the world of choiceless choices. That is, that no matter what you did, there was simply no good choice to save himself. He had to neglect the work in the archive. He was criticized for that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so he tried to compromise. He would would stay with his wife and child on the Aryan side. He'd come back into the ghetto, uh, and uh, that resulted in his being caught and sent to the Trubniki labor camp. Mm -hmm. How did the uh, Polish resistance um, relate to... uh the, the news really in the summer of 1942 that the Jews were going to be exterminated? Well, the Polish resistance was, of course, very heterogeneous. It was very diverse. Uh, there were uh, uh, basically the Polish underground army 
saw the Jews as foreigners, uh, not as Poles, not as people within the sphere of Polish moral responsibility. Uh, so what's happening to the, to, uh, the Jews is uh, one thing, uh, but, 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 but they're not Poles. We have our own agenda, our own uh, uh, timetable. There were many members of the Polish underground who were very happy that the Germans were uh, solving Poland's Jewish problem. On the other hand, uh, the uh, head of the propaganda division of the Polish uh, Home Army uh, was very sympathetic to uh, the Jews, and the journal of the Polish Home Army uh, began to uh, report on the tragedy of uh, the Jews in greater detail in late 1942. Uh, uh, Sub-Polish intellectuals in late 1942 uh, founded a group called Zygota, the Council to Aid Jews. Uh, Emanuel Ringelblum believed that while this was a laudable effort, it was too little and too late. Basically, Ringelblum was extremely critical of how Poles helped or didn't help Jews although he was quick to stress that many Poles did help Jews at the cost, at the risk of their lives, and that he himself was being helped by uh, Poles, and indeed the Poles who built the hideout, which hid 37 Jews, and which was ultimately uh, discovered by by the Gestapo. Two of those Poles were executed along with mm-hmm. the uh, Jews. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us about the burial of the archive itself. When was it decided to bury it? Well, the first cache of the archive uh, with a tin, tin, bo- with, with, uh, uh, tin boxes covering the material for 1940 to August 1942. Uh, that cache was buried uh, on, on August 3rd, 1942. And uh, it was buried under the uh, 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 former school of the labor Zionists. Uh, then, and at that point, nobody knew who was going to survive the summer of uh, deportations. Uh, the archive continued working after the first cache was uh, buried, and the second cache was buried in two aluminum milk cans in uh, February 1943. Mm-hmm. And then a third cache was buried under the uh, uh, brush makers factory on Schwentajerska 34. That was buried just a couple days before the outbreak of the ghetto revolt. Uh, in September 1946, uh, the searchers found the tin boxes of the first cache, although Hirschwasser, uh, Ringelblum's secretary and the one who knew where the archive was buried, said that uh, much material was actually missing and a lot of water had seeped in and many of the documents were uh, damaged. Uh, they kept looking, couldn't find anything else. And then in December 1950, Polish construction workers found the two milk cans mm. of the second cache, and there the documents were much better protected. Mm. Schwentajerska 34, where the third cache was buried, became the site of the Chinese embassy in uh, Poland. And a few years ago, Israeli searchers got permission from the Chinese to look underneath their embassy, but they couldn't find anything. Mm. So, so basically, uh, two of the th- 
three caches were found, and we have about twenty-five to 30,000 documents. Mm -hmm. And where are those documents today? The originals are in, uh, are in Warsaw, Poland, and there are microfilm copies at Yad Vashem in Israel and at the U.S. Holocaust Museum. What did um, Ringelblum want to happen to them? Didn't he have some specific plans about... Well, uh, they believed that if uh, that after the war, if they were found, they should be sent to the Evo in New York, the Yiddish Scientific uh, Institute, which had moved its base to New York in uh, 1940. And, and I, uh, I, I, I was going to say, I have to ask, why wasn't that wish honored? <laughs> uh, well, uh, post-war Poland was a communist country. It was the Cold War. Uh, there were uh, Jewish uh, survivors had founded a Jewish historical institute uh -huh. in uh, Poland, uh -huh. which is still uh, working and, and which is still doing wonderful work. Uh -huh. And um, it would simply have been uh, politically inopportune to send this yeah. archive to imperialist U.S. Yeah. Uh, at a time when Poland was an ally of the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. and, and I think many of the Jewish scholars were still hoping that Poland would maintain some degree of intellectual uh, freedom and give Jews some chance to rebuild a life after, after the war. So there was a short time after the war where there was a hope that there might be a revival of real Jewish life and uh, mm -hmm. Jewish scholarship. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How much of the um, Oneg Shabbos archive uh, has been published? Not much. Uh, you've had four volumes of documents published in, Pol in Poland. You had a, about a 700-page uh, English collection, uh, collection uh, translated into English, published in the 1980s, but most of the archive has not been uh, published. Mm -hmm. And has it been extensively studied? Has, has, has the entire archive been gone through? Not, not, uh, not really. Now, the director of the Jewish Historical Institute, Dr. Lena, Berg, uh, Dr. Lena Bergman in Poland, is now trying to uh, uh, set uh, up a project that is going to systematically publish the entire archive. Yeah, that's a that's an excellent idea. I hope that he does it on the internet so that we can all look at it, um, and in, yeah. and in multiple languages so that we can all read it. Um, what would you say? We've taken up a lot of your time. I know. Uh, let me ask you one a couple of final questions. Uh, one is, what do you think that the um, this is sort of a broad question. Historians don't like this kind of thing, but uh, what do you think the legacy of Oinig Shabos is and Ringelblum? I think I think uh, the legacy is that in times of of a, of a disaster, one can resist not only with guns but with paper and uh, pen. That Ringo Bloom and many of the Jews understood that uh, the Germans were sure they would win the war, that they would determine how the Jews would be remembered, that they would control the sources. They would control the memory. They would control the image. And Jews in the ghettos, historians in the ghettos, even if they understood that they probably would not survive, still believed it was important to leave time capsules, to leave mm -hmm. sources, so that uh, posterity would remember Polish Jewry, its final chapter, 
on the basis of Jewish sources, Jewish mm -hmm. documents. Mm -hmm. The real message is that history is important. Mm -hmm. It's important to conserve documents. It's important to uh, to uh, conserve a record. Uh, it's it's uh, not just for antiquarians. It's not just for li for librarians, but it's really about the future of an entire people. Mm -hmm. And uh, on a on a more general level. Uh, it instills a healthy respect for uh, preserving a sense of the past. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, I could not have said it better. I, the most incredible thing about this story to me is the fact that even while they were facing death, Ringelblum and his comrades continued to do this work, um, literally almost to the day that he died, or maybe even on the day that, that he died, he was doing this work. He felt it was that important. And, you know, I, I have to say that uh, he was right about that, because we are, we are on the phone talking about him, <laughs> not, not about the people who murdered him. <laughs> so so, uh, so uh, if he's up in heaven, um, I will uh, tip my hat to him, and also I'll tip my hat um, to you. Let me ask one final question. Uh, what are you working on now? What's your next project, Sam? Well, I'm working on a museum of Polish-Jewish history that's going to be uh, opened in Warsaw, Poland in 2011. That's terrific. Helping to design some pavilions. And I have a longer-term project to write a history of Polish Jews in the interwar period. That's that's a terrific that's a terrific project because I think it's it's very much misunderstood. I mean, the extent to which that we um, tend to cast back from the Holocaust to the interwar period, I think, sort of blinds us uh, to the incredible diversity of Jewish life. Um, I mean, as a Russian historian myself, I, I know about the incredible uh, sort of diversity of it um, uh, in, in the in the 19th and 20th century. But I think in the in, in the Polish perspective, it tends to be overshadowed by by what happens later on. And I, yeah, that's a terrific project, and you have to promise to when you're done with that, um, um, come back on the show and talk to us. Okay. Okay. Well, Sam, thank you very much for being on the show. I really appreciate well, it. Well, thank you. Okay. Take care now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Sam Kassow, author of Who Will Write Our History, Emanuel Ringelblum, The Warsaw Ghetto, and the Oiding Shabbos Archive. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. Hope you have a great week.